0: You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about, actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial
1: planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Veronica will introduce our guest in a moment, and I can tell you that you'll want to listen on to find out what he has to say about how new buildings are the ones with the biggest problems. People buy an apartment, a new place, and think, wow, I've got this brand new place to move
2: into. It doesn't stop the fact that you've got to live in a place that's got a lot of defects, and you've got to live in that place potentially for years. And if you're trying to rent the place, if you're an investor, then that obviously comes back to issues with renting the place if, if there's works going on in the building.
1: Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking dumbbell of the week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is generally nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking.
0: This episode, we're picking the brains of Michael Ferrier, founder and MD of Ion Property Inspections, home of the innovative open access inspections model, which basically means when agents or vendors are providing the building and pest and strata reports for property buyers. Correct, Michael?
2: Yeah, that's right. We do uh, inspections. The vendor pays us a fee and it means that buyers can access that report and our follow up um, for a much lower cost. So it cuts the risk for buyers and makes it easier and quicker for them to get information.
0: Michael's had over 30 years of experience across government policy, financial services, banking, franchising, and property. And we have it on good authority that he's spent a similar amount of time trying new beers and red wines. Now, Michael says that he likes problems because it's fun to find solutions. The challenge is to find solutions that also provide good business opportunities. And what we really want to hear about are some of the hidden dangers your reports protect property buyers from. And thank you for joining us, Michael.
1: Glad to be here. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for joining us. One of the things that I've noticed with buyers a lot is they're scared to ask questions and they're scared to look at building and pest reports and do the due diligence they need to actually buy the asset. You mind just going a bit more detail around, you know, buyers and and do they actually do the due diligence they need to?
2: It's a really interesting subject. And I think that buying property is a very emotional process. People see a property, they like a property, they love that property. And sometimes checking the property out properly. Might bring up some issues they don't really want to see because they really just want to buy the property. So, what they finish up doing is even if they're spending money getting due diligence reports, they're just ticking a box. They're not actually properly checking the place out. And sometimes that works out okay. Other times they finish up with a property that's got problems. And sometimes they'll look at a property and think this property looks great for the money. And there's a reason for that usually. Wow. And sometimes People can't get past the fact they think, look, this is this is a great bargain. We've got to grab this property. But often the reason it's a bargain is there's issues.
0: It's interesting you say all of that. The elephant, obviously, is a metaphor for the subconscious mind or the emotions. And, you know, there's various studies that suggest that 80% of our decisions are made by the elephant, not by our right or the rational mind. And it's very interesting what you say there about... It's almost it's wishful thinking, isn't it? it it's that confirmation mm. bias kicking in as well that I like that property. I want to buy that property. I know that I should do due diligence. So I'm going to get these reports and then I'll tick the box. I may not even read them. I'll just feel good that I got them. And I'm just going to put my fingers in my ears and say, la, la, la. <laughs> I don't want to know. Yeah, I don't want to hear.
2: Absolutely. And look, we see often people getting the reports on the same day, exchange yeah. contracts. Mm. It's almost as if it's an after the fact thought or they're. Their conveyancer or lawyer has said to them, you really need to get these reports and they have to give that advice obviously. So they get the report, they don't really look at it. They, they aren't saying to so the lawyer oh, anything in it, but the lawyer can't really give them advice on it mm. and then they never ask. They don't ring and ask questions as often as they should mm. and often that can actually give them comfort about the property if they ring and get some explanation about terms or issues that they probably don't really understand. The reality is that all properties have defects. Mm. Right? So, but that doesn't mean they're bad properties and people just need to understand what it is they're
1: buying. I mean, it comes down to an Australian culture. You know, she'll be right, mate. Let's just hope it'll be okay. Let's just buy it and, you know, let's not ask questions because we'll find out things that we don't want to even know. And I think that's the, the biggest thing for buyers is they over invest themselves in the emotion of actually owning this property and seeing their life there. That, you know, when it comes to the building report, they're already too far down the journey and they don't actually want to know the truth that, you know, that they might not buy this property. So I mean if you a want very... the
0: truth, you can't handle the yeah.
1: truth. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess it's there's strata and then there's building and pests. Mm-hmm. And you know, with Strata, it's getting a report. But I mean, how do you even go about that? So let's say you get a strata report, what, what should you do next? Should you review it? Should you get a professional?
2: If you get one of our reports, the first thing we say in the report is ring and ask us questions. And so often one of the issues with people buying apartments is they don't really understand What they're buying. They don't understand strata. They don't know what an owner's corporation is. They know that they've got to pay levies, but they don't necessarily understand what those levies are designed to cover. They don't really know what's happening in the building. And that's really what the strata report is telling you it's a snapshot of the current situation in the building, whether it's finances whether it's defects in the building, whether it's insurance and so on, whether it's you can have an animal in the building, Mm. all of those things are what a strata report is telling you. Now, to varying degrees, those things will be more or less important to different buyers, but it's really important for them to understand what they're getting into.
1: Is there any way for owners of apartments and buildings to keep things out of strata reports? Is a strata report always going to be 100% accurate?
2: No, and for a few reasons. You will get strata committees who you know, perhaps you know, push the line a little bit in terms of what goes in the records and what's kept out of the written record for the building. So yeah. that's one thing. You'll also get situations in apartments where you have individuals on the str- strata committee who are really trying to run that building to their own personal agenda. <laughs> and, and this can cause big problems mm. because buildings gradually deteriorate because these people don't want to spend money on the building. They want to keep their levies low. And then what they're doing is they're effective—they're damaging the asset, and that's a really important issue over the longer term. Ultimately, that building's going to have to get brought back up to standard, yep. and that's going to cost money. And the owners who are there at the time are the ones that are going to have to pay for that.
1: So I guess if you do own an apartment, was it advisable to try to join the Strata Committee?
2: I think if you want to have uh, an active interest in how the building is run, and how well it's maintained. It's important to be involved. Mm. You know, if you own a house, then obviously you want to keep it maintained. So some people are better at that than others. It'll be the same with apartments, but I think if you're if you want to live in a good building and a building that's well run, then get involved.
0: So, what are some of the warning signs because and this is a thing I think a lot of people think they're buying into strata and they don't want to because of high levies, for instance, and yet you've just alluded to a situation where low levies might be a bit of a problem. But fundamentally, the problem is people, isn't it? So what are some of the signs that people can look for when they're reading a strata report to give them, you know, the red flag?
2: Well, there's a lot and it varies from building to building. Look, lack of money is a major red flag if there's not much money in the bank. So a strata Uh, Building will have two funds an admin fund, which just should be pretty much break even every year, and then they should have a capital works fund, or it used to be called a sinking fund. And that's designed to cover future major expenditure. Mm. Now, there needs to be money in the bank to do that. So, if you have a decent size apartment building and it needs to be painted in three years' time, that might cost $100,000, as an example. Or if it's got a lift, then lift maintenance is expensive. Mm. So, you need to have money to pay for that. So, if you're looking at a building and it hasn't got much money, then major red flag. And that's probably the most important thing because one of the biggest fears that people have with apartments is having the special levy. They usually extend themselves as much as they possibly can to buy that apartment. The last thing they want is to then get a bill for $10,000. And we've seen bills in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, believe me.
1: Yeah. And I was just going to ask you that. Can you just give us some examples of how big some bills are on some buildings because a, a client recently was was going to buy an older apartment, cracking location, you know, had done loved it, was fallen in love with it. But then finally they've gone and looked at the Strata report. And, you know, there's seventy thousand dollars in the next two years of, of levies you know just on this is an older apartment i mean what's some of these you know in examples of yeah, these look, huge we, levies yeah look we
2: we saw one recently in the eastern suburbs where they had to spend 19 million dollars on the building <gasps> over the next 4 years wow now that was because they had to completely redo the facade of the building had to replace all of the windows and so on and you salt can just damage? sorry
0: salt damage um
2: i can't remember uh, the details now but 19 million and how many apartments Oh, it was a fairly big building, about seventy apartments, I think. But it's a lot of
1: money, Mm. and so some people are saying, "Right, I need to get out of here." And what's your choice there, as as an investor? You know, you either pay the levy. Or you sell. And yes. if you sell, it's in the strata report.
2: Correct. Mm. And so
1: the next buyer is going to be reading the strata report and isn't going to want to pay what it's worth. No. Because they're going to have to pay for the levy.
2: Correct. They'll have they'll be discounting the, the value of the property by yeah. the future cost of those levies. Yes. Well,
1: probably even more because as an investor, you haven't actually got the money to pay for the levy and a bank won't lend lend you for it.
2: No, look, the other thing with investors, of course, is if you're buying into a building that's going to have four years of works going on, yeah. who's going to rent it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so how do you get a return on your investment?
0: Mm. You're wow. going to want a big, big, big discount to buy that one. And there's risk involved too, because the thing is that unless you get involved in the strata, you're not going to have a lot of control over how those works are done either.
2: No, that's right. And look, and often, you know, if you've ever had work done on your own property, you'll know it takes longer and it costs more mm. than you think it's going to. Mm. So, you know, they might say it's a 12 month or a two year program, but you just often, you don't really know how long that's going to go. You really want to get woken up at seven am by you know major works going on?
1: No, it's miserable. <laughs> Dust and all that sort of crap. But Are levies actually fixed? Are they always going to stay the same, or can they rise? And who can who controls that?
2: No, well look, they should rise, and and that's just because of inflation. So mm. the the admin fund levies probably should. They, they've got to meet the costs. So costs will gradually rise over the years. So levies should rise to meet those costs. Mm. With the capital works fund levies, then it depends on the building. Some buildings don't have a lot of capital work requirements. So they may may be no lifts. They might not require painting. They might be brick buildings, for example. So those those buildings will need less money than a building that's got lifts, needs to be painted. It has pool and other plant as well that's got to be maintained. So it really varies.
0: What about GST?
2: Well, it depends. You know, it's the usual rules. It depends how big the building is. So, how much money are they collecting? Do they go over the threshold for GST? And if mm-hmm. they do, then you, you've got to pay GST. As so well. you're
0: going to get a ten percent increase when that happens. Yes,
2: that can happen too, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I
0: don't think a lot of people realise that. Yeah,
2: and I yeah, I don't know whether that threshold's ever changed. $75,000, yep. I think, and uh, I don't know whether it's ever gone up.
0: No, yeah. or $150,000 if it's non-profit. So yep. I think some of them argue they're non-profit, but, yes. but either or, even a special levy can take it over the threshold.
2: Yes. And I've seen recently some buildings describing special levies as additional levies, and they argue the reason they do that is for tax reasons. Now, I think it's a bit cheeky too because sometimes it looks like they're trying to hide that there's special levies in the building. Mm. I'm not saying that they're doing that, but describing mm. it as something different. I Reframing.
0: Think,
1: is it,
2: yes, a
0: little bit. <laughs> well, <Yes>. Tax avoidance <laughs> versus minimization. Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah. Now, new versus old buildings. Okay, so, you know, there's a huge difference, you know, in terms of the amount of apartments, the quality of the build, et cetera. Yep. You know, new apartments, are they free of these big special levies or, you know, are they some of the more guilty ones? No,
2: sadly they're not. And, look, some of the biggest problems we see are in new builds. And what happens is there's a, a bit of a rhythm to this, is that all of the units get sold, people move in, there's a defects process, which is normal. And then once all those defects are identified, then there can sometimes be legal action between the developer and the builder and then both of those people in the owners' corporation about who is obliged to fix those defects. Mm-hmm. Now we often see these defects running into the millions of dollars and often when it gets settled with the developer there's still a shortfall mm. and the owners will have to pay for that so you do see special levies in pretty new buildings and water penetration i've got to say is probably the most common problem that we see mm-hmm. and that can be a major issue if you if none of the balconies are sealed and water's getting into the units. You can imagine that's the problem. People buy an apartment, a new place, and think, "Wow, I've got this brand new place to move into." And then it rains. Well, it rains? And then there's also there's work got to go on then for the next two years to fix problems.
0: Yeah, or the um, bathrooms start leaking, or yeah. or pools on roofs. What do you think about them? Well, yeah, gravity. <laughs> <Water>. <laughs> gravity <laughs> will do it. Yeah, water takes the path of least yeah. resistance. It's, uh, I just don't like them personally.
2: <laughs> yeah, so, so look, it, I mean it's its easy to generalise um, but, yes, we do see a lot of issues with, with, with newer buildings.
1: I no. mean fundamentally a builder, you know, a lot of new apartments, they're there to make a profit and, you know, the biggest thing that drives their profit is how long it takes and how, how cheap they do the build really. And so you know when times are, times are tough and a build's got to be done in three months' time. Yep. You know it doesn't take much for corners to be cut and no. materials to not be the best quality and absolutely. Uh, you know and finally the, they get this they get this because there's a huge penalty if they don't hit this date, and they've got finance and they could lose their whole can you know construction company could go under if it yep. does, it doesn't hit. So you can imagine all this pressure that ends up being you know a poor product that gets produced sometimes. And then the person who has to deal with that is the the buyer at the end. And that process to to fix it could go on for years, couldn't it?
2: Look, it can. Many years in some cases. And even a good builder and developer who says, well, yeah, we'll fix everything, doesn't stop the fact that you've got to live in a place that's got a lot of defects. Mm-hmm. And you've got to live in that place potentially for years. Yeah, and if you're trying to rent the place, if you're an investor, then that obviously comes back to what we were talking about before with... Issues with renting the place, if if there's works going on in the building.
0: And none of these things get fixed quickly either, do they? No, they so, don't. And particularly with water, that can create problems that you're living with for some period of time. Nothing really happens in strata quickly anyway, does it? But when you've got a situation where you, all the, the stakeholders are trying to pass the buck and really trying to establish who's actually ultimately responsible, I've seen some buildings where uh, while the litigation is going on, they're they're funding that until the uh, insurance pay out or they're they're waiting for a court win. And in the meantime, the owners are actually fun- funding that uh, litigation. So yes, it that's,
2: can be- we, we, that's definitely true. And we, we see that a lot. We see large legal fees because mm. um, the owners' corporation needs to be represented in this and that and lawyers are not cheap. So you see that happening and, of course, that's all got to happen before you get any settlement, whether it's insurance or whether it's a, an agreement with the developer. And it goes on a long time. As I say, we see this, you know, like a new building and then five years after the building's finished, yeah. often there's continuing issues.
0: Yeah. You say that you see this sort of thing a lot with new buildings. Mm. And obviously from the buyer's perspective, they're generally paid a premium to buy into a brand new building and then they're continuing to pay afterwards for this sort of thing if, if they've got a bad building what sort of period of time do you think you should leave it before you're looking at a building? Is seven years enough, ten years?
2: Uh, look, it's going to depend on the building, and this is where the Strata Report can help you if you're looking at a building because it'll give you an idea of what's happened, yep. uh, where it's up to. So in some cases the building could be fine after two years. I mean, look, mm. some buildings obviously will be, always be okay. There you know, won't be major defects. Mm. Um, but some will be fine after two years. Sometimes after five years there's still lots of stuff going on. So this is where checking what's been happening in the building is really important. In a new building, if you if you do want to buy into a new apartment building, you love the location, it's near where you want to live and so on, then that's when checking the detail will be really important.
1: And I guess it's just always a risk when you are buying something that hasn't got a track record. Um, you're just mm. not going to – you're not sure. And I guess as an investment, when you are investing five hundred. $700, a 1000000 $1. $1.2 million in an apartment, you Now, do you really want to be taking a risk on something that potentially could have problems? And no. you know, one of the big risks with buying apartments is you have got a strata, you have got you know, a building that you need to kind of keep maintained. And yep. You've got to really think through when you are buying it, can you afford a special levy? And if you can't, Absolutely. then you shouldn't even be considering it.
2: Look, I agree. I think there's more risk in buying newer, newer apartments. The other risk that we see commonly is increasing levies. So, you know, in a new building, the levies get set, but as you say, there's no track record. Mm. So they don't really know what it costs. I mean, they get somebody who's experienced to come in and estimate that, but very commonly we see levies, the marketing levies or the introductory levies can be a bit lower. And then we can see some pretty substantial increases in levies in the first few years because the cost of running that building is much higher. Than they thought.
1: Yeah. I mean, if I miss a developer and I'm trying to sell my apartments, I want those levies on the marketing material to be as low as possible, don't I?
2: Look, they do. And and, and you even in older buildings, you see this as well that the lower levies become a marketing mm. opportunity. Yes. You know, it attracts buyers because the ongoing cost is going to be a bit lower. Mm. But often that can be one of the red flags, Absolutely. Veronica, yeah. that you mm. mentioned before, because those low levies can mean that that building's not being looked after the way yeah. it should.
0: Yep. Golden yeah. tip there. Yeah. So with a new building or with any building for that matter, it's quite expensive to get a building and pest inspection on the actual whole building, isn't it?
2: On an apartment building, yeah. do you mean? Yeah. Very hard. And, and hard to do, right? Well, it's hard well. to do because, <laughs> you know, the inspector would have to get access to every apartment. Mm. <laughs> and remember that when you're buying an apartment, you're really just buying the airspace between the walls. Yeah. The owner's corporation owns the building and you own the space between the walls, you know, crudely. From the paint. Yeah. (laughs) The
0: paint in. Yeah, Yeah. that's
2: right. And we get people asking us to do building inspections on units. Mm. You can inspect that unit and if it's a top floor unit, you might be able to get on the roof and have a look at the roof or if it's a ground floor unit and you can get as a subfloor, you can get access to that and obviously the common areas. But you can't get access to all the other parts of the the building and often... If they're a few storeys tall, the inspector can't climb up the sides of it. It's just not possible. No. And so, yes, the inspection of those is limited. So,
0: Are they useful, though, in well, some circumstances?
2: Yes, in some circumstances. So older buildings, particularly smaller blocks of four or, or, or something like that, particularly if they've got wooden floors, there can be issues with termites that people should be checking out. Rising damp yep. is an issue in older blocks in some areas as well. So those things can be checked out with a building inspection. So, ground floor units and top floor units are probably where the value is because you might get water leaks from a ceiling. Now, obviously, those things should be fixed by the owners' corporation, but then it's a question of how long it takes to get fixed and what barriers put up in front of you.
0: Yeah. Not only that, but if you're in a small block of four, a lot of people say, oh, I only want to buy in a small block. Well, then you've got four people paying all the costs. Yes. So, that's the negative of being a really small block. You don't Mm. have a lot of people to share share the load with
2: take that small block analogy, that older building may need a new roof. Now, that could be, I don't know, $50,000, $100,000 to, to mm. replace the roof. Uh, now, at some point, those four owners might then have to stump up $25,000 each to mm. cover the cost of that roof. Yeah. Now, that's going to happen eventually. How far down the track it is, you, know, you don't know unless you check it out.
1: From an investment point of view, it, is, it does make sense to go for the smaller box. You know, if you can mm. afford the levees, you know, you are getting more land Yes. generally, you know, if there's only four apartments rather than 40, um, and lands the, you know, the majority of what goes up. So, you know, it makes sense, but you're right. Then if you're splitting a levy four ways instead of 12 ways, it's a much bigger hit to the pocket. Just want to take a different tack now and, yep. and move more to building and pests inspections with real estate agents. Yes. Now there's one line of thought now, and a lot of agents are actually providing the building and pests. Can we really trust that? Can we actually use the, the building and pest that an agent provides or should we do our own due diligence and get our own independent report?
2: There's a few different models out there and you're right yes agents are doing this more. We have a product that's designed to work with vendors and what that enables is allows buyers to access the report at a much lower cost so that they can then take less risk in doing their due diligence in a financial sense. Mm-hmm. So instead of costing them $500 it costs them $99. If they buy the property, they pay a top-up fee, but if they don't buy the property, they've only lost the $99. Now, in an auction environment where you have to have done your due diligence before you bid, it's really important to have looked at a report. People get worn down by the building and pest process. They look at a few properties, they spend $500 here, $500 there. It adds up, and it's yep. all money coming out of their pocket. It's cash, unlike a lot of the other costs with property that get yep. a combination of debt and equity You know from from previous properties, for example. So they tend to skimp on this eventually. And sometimes we see people buy, the property they buy, they don't get a report at all yes. because they've got worn out yeah. with the process.
0: They spent, so, you know, 500 on three report each yeah. on three reports. Then they finally say, bugger it. I'll look at someone else and assume they've done it. And <laughs> if they're bidding, I'm going to buy it.
2: So that's a, sorry, a long way to answer your question. So if an agent is just giving a report out, think about what that means. So. Mm. What incentive does the inspector have to answer your questions and follow up with you? He's not getting to get paid anything to do that. How much does that inspector rely on the real estate agent for his business? Yep. And does that cause him to be a little less
1: diligent. objective
2: or diligent about the process? Now, real estate agents don't have great trust with buyers. Now, does that if, if a real estate agent is just giving you a report, are you going to trust that as much that if you go, to a third party and get a report, and then you can follow up with that third party directly. That will give you a higher level of trust.
0: Let's can um, we rewind that a little bit. Yeah. So with, say, your model, yeah. who pays for the initial report? So the,
2: the vendor pays us a fee, which is a it's it's not the full cost of the report. It's mm-hmm. a discounted amount. Yep. And then each buyer who accesses our report, yep. they come to us to get the report. Yep. So all the reports get downloaded from our website. Yep. They pay us $99 if it's a building and pest or $69 if it's a strata report. Yep. And then if one of the people who download the report buy the property, they pay a top up fee. Right. But they mm. still finish up paying a bit less than they would just to get a standard report.
0: And are they able to, on the 99 or the 69, they're still able to actually call you oh, absolutely. and talk to the inspector?
2: Absolutely. Right. And we really encourage that. That's a really important part. Of the service. And what I would say is that there's a real distinction here between a report and a service. Mm. Mm. I actually did a bit of lobbying with the New South Wales government. They were talking about making building and pest reports compulsory. And I lobbied against it Mm. because what you finish up is just a report. Mm. You get no service. Mm. And in the ACT, they've had compulsory reports for quite a few years. And what's happened there is that the quality of the reports has really dropped. The people who look at the reports, the buyers don't feel like they're a customer of the building inspector, so they can't follow up. And so I just think that the the quality of service really
0: drops. Great distinction.
2: Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important thing for buyers to think about here. So yes, they can follow up with us, ask as many questions as they want, but there's also benefits for vendors in this as well, because often they are then able to understand what the issues are with their property and they know how to deal with that upfront, rather than having this, I sometimes describe it as an unexploded bomb Mm. that could Mm. be sitting there. And (laughs) two days before the auction, all of a sudden this issue arises. So we had a situation just last week where a property was due to go to auction last weekend. We did an inspection for a buyer and active termites were in Mm. the property. Now, Mm. then they've got this massive problem to deal with. Now, if they'd got somebody in earlier and found that problem, then they could have done something. To fix the issue.
0: Yeah, before know. they're so put on the market. It's not about
2: hiding issues for vendors here. It's about creating an environment where they feel a bit more confident about the property they're selling, right? And that creates confidence for buyers too. I've
1: yeah, got- I mean, I guess there's a few sides to it. A vendor mm. would, if you have a property mm. and, you know, it's like owning a car that's a bit old and maybe got a bit of rust, you don't want to identify issues for buyers but I think you're being a little bit ignorant in thinking the buyers aren't going to go to their own due diligence and find these issues mm. anyway. And so I guess you know when we're talking about the elephant in the room with the podcast, it's yep. really just for agents. If if you're not kind of you know bringing these issues to the to the front and actually discussing them, you're really just turning off buyers because buyers are going to see the issues and just walk. Yep. You know
2: yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the word that I sort of think is important here is transparency. Yep. So there's not enough transparency in property transactions, and I think creating a bit of transparency in terms of access to, to information about the property is really important. Mm-hmm. So th- there's lots of glossy marketing stuff. Uh, the property looks great, but let's be let's be a bit more open about what's under the under, under the bonnet. To take the-, <laughs> the used car analogy,
0: being on the front foot and actually getting out there and and declaring these things to buyers yep. is actually better for the agent and the vendor. But I've got two questions for you about agents. Mm. The first one is. Recently, and offline, I'll tell you who the agent is here, but they have one of your reports that they're offering for a property that they're selling, and they're not offering it $99, they're offering it at $399.
2: Well, we've had a few issues with agents who are using our service, and because the vendor is paying a fee, they get to see what's in the report. We've had a few issues with agents then giving those reports out, which completely defeats the purpose of the service.
0: That's the opposite. These these ones are, I think they're making a profit.
2: <laughs> if if agents are then marketing our own report, then yeah, that's a big issue for us. And look, part of the reason it's a big issue is that we don't know whether the report they're selling for 3.99 is exactly the same report that we did. Mm. This is this is a really oh, wow. real big issue mm. for us. Is, is that buyers normally come to us to get the report, we know what they've got. If they've got it from the agent, we can't guarantee what Doesn't they've got. We don't know. I'm not saying that they would do that, but what I'm saying is <laughs> that from our perspective, it's really important that we we provide the report and we provide the follow up. Yeah.
0: yeah. And the other the other question I have on agents is: Have you ever had an owner or an agent try to get or try to influence you in terms of the report contents?
2: Yes, we have. Yes, agents will occasionally try to get issues played down, mm. and we have to be really strong with this because the thin end of the wedge applies here. You can't let them influence what you do. And in fact, in a few cases, we've just said we won't deal with you anymore because we have to remain independent. If our service isn't independent, nobody can trust it. And so that's a really important um,
1: line in the sand for us. And that's what I probably one of your your services, probably the challenges of actually implementing it is actually getting agents to commit because they w- sometimes they're going to have to get listings that aren't going to be great from a property report point of view. Yep. And really if they're going to always have every single property to have this process, some properties they might not want to give the report on. They want to just hope that people won't go and do their due diligence. Yep. So I guess that's probably one of the challenges. I always just remember a property I looked at a few years ago and it looked stunning from the outside. Yep. Uh, had beautiful white, fresh chalk paint, everything around the property looked perfect. But when we actually got a builder in, you know, we found more issues than you can think about. Does it really matter how pretty the property is or is that even a warning sign to say, you know, this could just be a touch-up job basically? Lipstick on a pig. Yeah.
2: Yeah, Chris, you've reminded me of an example. Um, A few years ago we did a report on this really well-renovated house in the eastern suburbs it was it really looked fantastic as mm. older couple were looking to downsize into this you know cottage type place and looked really good when our inspector went to the property it needed a new roof mm. the roof everything had been renovated but the roof was pretty much gone mm. and it was a, it was 30,000 or i can't remember how much but so, you know around that sort of money to get it done and the, they walked because they didn't want to have to go through that process they wanted to buy a property where everything was done, they could walk in and enjoy. And the agent was furious. Mm. But the reality was they were selling this fully renovated property and it had a 100-year-old roof.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like white chalk paint. You know, I know that's something that if you are trying to hide kind of marks <laughs> in the wall and you do want to, you know, maybe hide a bit of damp and some cracking yep. and, yep. Um, you know, some, what are some of the tricks that buyers or sellers use to kind of, I guess, gloss Mask. it up?
2: Yeah, look, look, obviously painting can hide a lot of things and and that type of thing. And look, the building inspection process isn't perfect. It's a visual inspection. The inspector Mm. can't go around there, start, you know, putting screwdrivers into walls and stuff because obviously they'll damage the property. But the inspectors are experienced. They know what to look for. They'll be looking for telltale signs of leaks, using a moisture meter to check whether there's moisture in the walls. The paint looks great, Mm. but the, the moisture meter can... And tell them what. Or you know, they just know that a particular style, say a terrace, they know that those buildings have got rising damp. Yep. Say, so take that example for a buyer's looking, they want to buy an older building, they've just got to appreciate that it comes with the territory, that mm. some of those defects like rising damp come with that style of building because of the way they were built.
0: And this is one of the things that I think is important to, one of the questions that is important to ask the inspector is well, how does it compare with others of a similar age yep. and condition? <laughs>
2: Really important, Veronica, that you bring that up because that's the purpose of the report. It is a it is a comparative analysis. So when the inspector comes to a conclusion about that property, is it average? Is it above average? Is it below average? They're comparing it with similar properties. So similar age and a similar type or style. And so they're seeing lots of properties and then they're, they're making that that comparative
1: judgment. Well, that's right. Because a building inspector, if they're professional and they're doing well and they're you know, they might be doing, what, 10, 20, 50 reports a week?
2: We think an inspector can realistically only do about three a day. Three a day. Yep. So w- we know there are some inspection businesses where people are doing six a day. They mm. can't be doing them
0: properly. No.
2: And and so three a day, 15 a week, they're seeing a lot of properties. They're seeing 500, 600 properties in a year.
1: Funny you say that because I uh, remember a conversation with a building inspector a few years ago and he said that he got there at 3.30 with the agent and the agent's letting him in And then the agent's saying, look, mate, can you only be 15 minutes? I've got to get to my next appointment. (laughs) My builder, you know, who I was using to to look at the property was saying, mate, I'm going to be an hour. Yeah. You know, we're going to have to go through this. And the agent was trying to speed up the builder and it was up to the builder to kind of push back on the agent to say, look, I'm going to do this properly. And what you're talking about there is is probably a good question is to ask a builder is how many are you doing a day? And if they're doing six or seven, you know, then it's probably a red flag that they're not doing a, 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 a great job.
2: You know, you've got to do them in daylight hours. Travel in Sydney is, or, you know, Melbourne mm. or wherever it is, you know, it means that, you know, you just can't realistically do it. They've also got to then generate a report yep. based on that inspection. It's not possible mm. to do a proper job doing more than three a day.
0: Now, how about building and pest inspectors that overly negative negative? in an effort to actually continue to get themselves business.
2: Yeah, we see this too. So I call these people the parking inspector type approach. And often, <laughs> what, often what happens with these reports is they're littered with minor defects. Mm, yeah. And blown so, up a bit. Yeah, and so just about any property can be made to look like a, a real problem, Yeah, a real lemon. Yep. And I, I don't know, I, I'm not saying a lot of inspectors do this, but... It's hard to find customers. So if you're working for a buyer and you can get two or three inspections Mm. out of each buyer, then that's better business Mm. for you. And so the first inspection they do could well be, well, I wouldn't touch this one. Yeah. But we'll find you a good one. Yeah. Don't worry. Yeah. And so then they think that building inspectors really save them and so they finish up spending, you know, on two or three inspections.
0: Years ago when I was selling, I had a vendor who you know, a little weatherboard cottage. And it was a flat market, it was a really tough market mm. too. We had this buyer and they were got to the building in pest stage. Yep. And my vendor had renovated. it. I knew that she'd done a good job, you yep. know, a thorough job. And so when I read the report that said, Don't touch this, and had photographs of the subfloor with with all the original bearers and joists all just left lying on the ground and big broken bits of timber everywhere and absolute mess. Mm. And I thought, I just don't believe it looks like that under there. So I crawled under the house and took photos and they were not (laughs) of the same house. But the damage was already done with that buyer. And even though I took the buyer back there and showed her, she would not and did not buy that property. And that was a, I mean, that was a glaring example of the doctored report.
2: Yeah, definitely happens. I mean, there's good and bad operators in every Mm. business, as you know, but I, I do think yeah, it's, you've got to be a bit careful. One of the things that I talked about littered with minor defects, the purpose of the building inspection report isn't really to draw out loads of minor defects. It's really there to alert you to major issues or safety issues and then to give an assessment, an overall assessment of the level of minor defects. Mm. And I think that's really important because I think particularly if you get if you inspect a relatively good property, inspectors feel like they've got to find stuff. You know, they've yep. got to find stuff yeah. to put in their report. So they start mm. putting in lots of minor stuff, which really isn't that important. They're mostly yep. just maintenance items. Mm. And I think the purpose of the report gets a bit lost in that case. And it's something yep. that we talk about in our business is making sure that if you're going to be at the property for an hour or more, that you spend your time looking for major issues, yep. not looking at whether or not there's a doorstop. Yeah, you know, there's seriously, there's, you see yeah. this in reports a lot. Yep. Oh, there's no doorstop on mm. that, you know, yep. so the handle might- you know, damage the wall or yeah. something, and that's um, a, that seems to me a wasted opportunity.
1: And I guess that's when you're reading the report, you're basically saying it's more minor issue. Call up the inspector. Yeah, is this really an issue? No, no. it costs five hundred dollars mm. to fix. Yeah, okay, move on. Yeah, and then it's okay. Actually, you know what? There's a problem with our you know our flooring. as yep. a you know the stilts and yep. you know maybe this is a big problem. You know how big is it? Or well, we don't know. Yep. and then a real discussion around that would Correct. actually give the buyer a lot more confidence to yep. say, well. Yes, there's a major problem. Yep. It's a bit of an unknown, yep. so we need to factor that in. But then we move on to the next item. And I guess that's the, that's the idea of the report. Absolutely. A lot of buyers like to use a building report as a bargaining tool. Yeah, um, What's your thoughts on that? Oh, look,
2: we, see, we do see this happen, and we also see people who want to don't want the agent to know they've done the building inspection report. They want to be secret about <laughs> everything they do. And I, I don't understand the, the logic behind it either. The build, the, look, depends on the market um mm. if, the, if the market's difficult, then yes, I can see why people might want to use a building inspection report as a bit of a bargaining tool, but that's not really the idea. really, the way I look at it is buyers don't really want a building inspection report per se. they want to know the property is okay mm. right The report is a mechanism for them to find out whether the property's okay, and the follow up with the inspector is a really important part of understanding the report, but also getting that confirmation in, yep. you know over the phone from the inspector that these are the things i saw actually this property pretty good you yeah. know it's it's x years old and it's actually fine you so know. just
1: on that while you're there if the building inspector does say that it's pretty good yeah what liability or what can the buyer ever go back to the builder inspector and say you told me x and y yeah but it's actually z and yep. you know what's so what's, what's the
0: recourse? So so
2: what the building inspector should be saying should be consistent with what they've written in the report. First thing, mm-hmm. right? Because the report is a written record of the inspection. So that's important. But if the inspector has missed something, you know, and then they've missed something major, and that there's a cost there. Then the inspector should carry professional indemnity insurance, so so they're covered, and it, it, by extension, the buyer is covered by that. And what's by the that chance insurance. of actually getting claiming on that? Uh, well, if you hold professional indemnity insurance and and a buyer comes to you and says, I think you've missed this in the report, you're obliged under your insurance to let the insurer know that. Mm. And then the insurer then will get, usually if they're good insurers, they'll get involved in the correspondence process with the person. The way we approach it, if that happens, and it does occasionally happen where people come back and they feel like there's an issue there, is that we'll immediately go back to the property with the inspector and then we'll have a look at all those issues and then we'll respond for their questions now, usually though, usually it gets sorted out at that level, but we would always inform our insurer of that correspondence so that so that they're on board, and that's a condition of the insurance.
1: Does every building inspector have personal professional indemnity insurance?
2: I'm sure they don't, but they should.
1: There's a good question yeah.
0: to ask them then, yeah, isn't there, There's it? no
2: <laughs> uh, in New South Wales, for example, there isn't any registration, so so there's no formal mechanism to. To be licensed as a building inspector, different wow, in Queensland, really? for example, it used to be years ago, but they mm. got rid of it. So anybody in theory can put their hand up and say they're a building inspector.
0: Wow, well, and, they, that's and a tip so, for buyers because I tell you what, I didn't even realise that.
2: Yeah, and so buyers, so you'll see a lot of people who perhaps don't have the experience or qualifications they should, and a lot of people who are not carrying insurance. Yeah, so I mean, so to... any buyer should be checking
1: those things out. Mm. Yeah, I mean, a really scary story for a client just recently is. They were doing a renovation on their house. It was yep. a you know a nice bathroom and a nice Art Deco apartment in the you in know the inner east of Sydney. They found a builder, a personal recommendation from a friend, and they mm. looked all okay. But they didn't do the due diligence on the yep. builder, you know, and they didn't check his license. But you know he's got good track record. It's personal introduction, you know. They just they're busy people, so they think, well, this sounds all right. <laughs> the builder in, in in actually started going after they got a bit of money went a on them and was taking really long, and the bathroom's half done. And they sped him up and said, you know, you've got to keep, you know, pick the pace up. Yep. He got a waterproofer in. He did a quick job. They paid him the final amount and then he went, he left. Yep. And he couldn't get in contact with him. You know, it turned out that he was unlicensed. Yep. And then the waterproof uh, was actually someone off Airtasker.
0: Oh. So, <laughs>
1: and when you're in a Strata building, oh dear. the building hasn't got a waterproof certificate. No. You then have to redo the bathroom. So $40,000 later, you have to... Take it all down and do it professionally again. That has to be our
0: Dumbo of the week.
1: Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing them a whole lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Okay, Michael, can you give us a property Dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. Well, uh,
2: we had a situation a little while back where we got a letter from a lawyer. We're just talking about this. We got a letter from a lawyer saying that we had not disclosed defects in an apartment building, not, not too dissimilar from what you're talking about. And so the first thing we do is identify the customer as one of our customers. And, yes, we, we found that they'd accessed a report that we'd done on that building. But guess what? They got it from our website nine months after they'd bought the property.
0: Wow! And
2: the report that we'd done... Was done before the issues in the apartment building came to light, and they thought that they could still come and argue that you know they'd mm. suffered a loss,
0: which was just crazy. They didn't even mm. rely on and it for the decision. So when I rang
2: the lawyer and I said to him, "Do you realise this?" He was embarrassed, and of course, we never heard any more about it. But this is—it was a great example of people just not knowing what they were doing, or mm. or having buyers remorse and thinking, "God, we've we've." You know, mm. we shouldn't have bought this place. Who can we blame? Who can we blame? Who can we blame? Yeah.
1: Wow. I mean, and- <laughs> my takeaway with all this is, is would you rather lose $500 or lose 150 or $200,000 yep. yep. if you don't spend the $500? Yep. And it's you back get to loss aversion
0: though, isn't it? The the, the $500 is actually, actually more tangible because they are – going to pay it, yes, as opposed to the rest, which is a might be. So that loss aversion yep. causes them to say, right, I don't want to lose the 500 because no. I don't really think I'm going to lose the other.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I think you're right. You're right on, on the money there. Um, and it wears people down. As I said, we were talking mm-hmm. before, Yeah, you know, they spend a few 500s. and
1: head,
2: head in the sand.
0: Well, actually, I think that sort of wraps us up. And is there anything that you'd like to add?
2: Look, one thing I'll say is if people, if you're a buyer, and here's an, here's an offer for anybody out there. Look, we've got on our website, we've got ebooks for buyers, which go through the whole process. So people can obviously just access that stuff. If they can't find it on our website for any reason, just call us, ion.com.au. The other thing that we're happy to do, if you've got buyers and they've got somebody else's report and they don't understand stuff, call us. We're happy to talk to you. Wow. Happy to talk to you. That's an offer. Yeah. So
0: we'll pop the links for your ebooks in our Elephant Memory Bank. Right. So thank you very much for that. Yep. And we are all about educating buyers so they can make better decisions. So yep. we really appreciate you coming to to meet with us today it was and fun. talk about these things. Yeah. I'm sure we'll get you back another time because I reckon we could dig deeper even on both building yeah. pests and strata reports. Yep, there's
2: a lot of issues in there.
1: Um, and a lot of issues people just don't understand. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Michael. Cheers. Thank you. We want to make you a better elephant rider. This week's elephant rider training is...
0: A very interesting thing that we learned today from talking to Michael was that you can call the inspector and you should. So after you've had a building and pest inspection done, call the inspector, ask questions about anything that you don't understand. Specifically ask how this property stacks up in relation to other properties of a similar age and condition, but also ask whether there are any deal breakers. One of the questions that I like to ask is, would you let your son or daughter buy this property? Also, with the strata report, I think it's really important to realise that you can also call the inspector and ask your questions there. One of the questions to ask inspectors would be, what was missing from the records when you did that inspection? For instance, emails are an important thing. Email correspondence between committee members and the strata management for argument's sake. Often there's not a lot of detail in the minutes of the meetings, but the real goings-on come out when you read the email correspondence. So that's our Elephant Rider Bootcamp this week. Ask questions, pick up the phone, call the inspectors once you've got these reports.
1: So, Veronica, what have we got to add to our Elephant Memory Bank this week? Well, actually, Michael's got something for us. Agents are salespeople and they want to sell the property. And if they see an
2: issue they think is going to torpedo that sale, then some of them you know and this is this is a really interesting topic because agents at the moment are trying to become a profession mm. and i wrote a blog on our website recently saying it's not good enough to be professional most of the time
0: <laughs> if you're going to be a
2: profession you need to be professional all of the time yeah. and what happens when the sale gets on the line, sometimes that's where the professionalism falls away.
0: We'll put the link to that blog on the show yeah, notes. Sure. Yeah, sure. Tune in for next episode when we interview Michael Harris, who's a sales agent at Rain and Horn Newtown. Michael is an absolute epitome of a local expert, and we really talk about why that's important. Michael values transparency very highly, and so in our interview, he is very revealing in terms of the types of influencing strategies good agents
1: use when negotiating with buyers. The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Soundbury. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk and edited by Gordie Fletcher. Until next week,
0: don't be a dumbo. Me again, don't forget, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and we'd love an iTunes review.
1: Be aware, everything we talk about on this podcast is generally nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances.